Acts 23, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going alongside, or aside rather, asked him privately, What is this that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Verse 23, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I set him at once to you, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, since though you, through you, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, 
He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept. And there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is respect with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. We'll stop right there. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Acts chapter 23 and 24. Lord, we ask that you would show us something through these paragraphs, sentences, and words about how we can know you better, know your Apostle Paul better, know our sin and know our Savior better. Lord, would you open to us these things? We thank you for time together to study, time to understand, and Lord, the prospect for your glory and your honor to be obedient. We ask these things in in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, let's uh, try to arrange this larger piece of text, and hopefully as we read along, you could see that it kind of flows quickly from one thing to another, and it would be hard um, to chop this into two and then uh, to bring that back next week and begin again. But if you look in chapter 23, you might even have the chapter title there, verse 12, A Plot to Kill Paul. And then in verse 23, Paul sent to Felix the governor. And then uh, chapter 24, Paul before Felix at Caesarea. So what we'll do is we'll we'll say the first part, part in 23, Paul escapes an attempt on his life. And then under that we'll have the plot hatched and the plot foiled. And then when we get to verse 24, we've got Paul before Felix. And you've got a prosecution and then a defense. So two points with two sub-points each. Uh, It's not a pointless message, as some have been in the past. It always kind of gets a chuckle. But uh, we've got a lot before us. Let's see if we can work through it. So the plot is hatched. And these Asian Jews, uh, that can be a bit misleading. They were the Jews from the area of Ephesus that had followed Paul around different places where he was preaching and gave him a hard time. 
tried to kill him, and then they come up again here and there. But having been frustrated in their attempts to kill him, and then here more recently in the previous weeks, uh, the Sanhedrin having been unable to convict him by the law of Moses of any offense, now we've got a group who've decided... Forget those Jews from Asia and forget trying to run this through normal channels. We'll just all promise to each other, making an oath, that we won't eat again until he's dead. And they've got 40 people, actually more than 40, who've agreed to this plot to murder Paul. And right out of the gate, I think there's plenty to think about. I've never heard of such a thing uh, in American history uh, such like this. I mean, certainly they've been around. We're reading the book of Acts. Many of these men have lived the book of Acts. Don't they know that Paul gets away with just about everything? Are there going to be 40 men dead from starvation? Is it really that serious? Will they really keep their, their oath Will they sit around amongst one another and make sure that nobody eats? Rather than looking at it that way, it would probably be the better thing is to look at how seriously hateful they are toward Paul. That's the length to which they'll go to make sure that he's dead. Uh, It might be difficult to make sense of it ourselves, but it should tell us that the hatred is deep. And then again, and this is an argue from, argument from silence, we, we do those carefully, but you remember when Peter was in prison, there was a prayer group praying that he gets out. And when he got out, he knocks on the door and the girl answers it. I think her name was Rhoda, wasn't it? Uh, she gets so excited, she slams the door in his face to go tell everybody he's alive. They have to come back and open the door. There's none of that here. Uh, True to his word when he wrote uh, 2 Timothy, no one came at my defense. So these 40 were able to talk to the Sanhedrin and talk them into asking the tribune for another hearing, bring him back by. The idea was that when Paul would be brought through those little streets, those of you who are looking at that Israel trip, you'll probably walk through some very similar if maybe not the same tight little streets between the marketplaces. Wonderful place for an ambush. But think of it. If the tribune's going to deliver Paul back to another hearing through narrow streets, he's, he's going to do this with armed men. It's another thing to add to it. They know there will be casualties. They're willing to give their lives in order to make this man dead. So... No sooner than we're given a description of the plot itself, we learn that the plot is foiled. And on this occasion, God's intervention involves Paul's nephew. There's nothing miraculous here. Remember last week, Jesus comes and stands by Paul in a vision in the night. Nothing like that. This is, this is pretty much commonplace as, as, as far as the miraculous is concerned. No thunder, no lightning, no whirlwind, just Paul's little nephew. How many of you knew Paul had a nephew? How many of you knew Paul had a sister? You should read your Bibles more. But I have to confess I forgot that part too. Because you just don't, this is the only place in Scripture, and if it wasn't here, we wouldn't know that he had a sister, and we wouldn't know that he had a nephew. And how this little fellow got 
into the barracks. Again, inquiring minds want to know. We don't know this stuff. We wish we did, but we just take Luke's word for it. This is how it happened. So from Paul's nephew to Paul to a centurion to the tribune who hears it from the young man's own lips, the cat is out of the bag and in quick order. Commander decides to send Paul to Caesarea, readies a convoy while he writes a letter to Felix, the governor. Now, how many of you like the part where we read over the official letter? And did any of you find that that official letter sure sounded official and nothing like the story we heard last week? Don't you love government correspondence? And the stuff that they'll put into the record, knowing that it's just dripping with... with politics and everything else i mean it's kind of hard not to smile when reading it it is correct in how he'd rescued paul and giving him special treatment as a roman citizen yes absolutely brought him before the council learned that the charges were only religious foiled a plot against him all that's true sent him to the governor that would be true and ordered his accusers to appear and present their case in court which is true however Slight misrepresentation about the facts and the order in which we find them. They portray him favorably in that he put the discovery of Paul's Roman citizenship before his rescue instead of after to cover that little mistake that he stretched him out for a scourging when he was a Roman citizen. And if it hadn't been for the centurion who said, hey, this guy says he's a Roman citizen. Hold on just a minute. Go find the tribune. Did you know this guy's a Roman citizen? Well, you might ought to want to find out because if we do, we're both in trouble. We may be scourged ourselves. So he skips over that part, right? And he skips over the part, uh, you know, about finding that he was a citizen when he said the part that, uh, you know, I paid for my citizenship with uh, a big price, a bribe. You know, leave that part out when you're writing to the governor too. It's kind of funny. But very honorable, but very much self-centered So that said, the military transfer, if you notice that, would have been quite a sight too. This tribune is in charge of a 1,000 men. Now he's sending 200 men, 70 horses, and 200 spearmen. Is that more or less than half of his army at the Antonio Fortress is headed to Caesarea to deliver Paul to Felix? Great, big, huge show of force right here. And did you notice that Paul got his own horse? That's nice. So when you think about this man who earlier standing beaten and probably swollen on his face, motioning with his hand to speak to a mob, now he's getting as VIP treatment as VIP treatment gets. Rome's going to make sure nothing happens. And if Rome was scared about anything... It was a riot or some type of uprising by the people. So they really know not what to expect, but they're going to be ready either way. Whether or not he's wearing a bulletproof vest, I don't know. My daddy actually used to preach in a bulletproof vest. That's another story, and I'll answer it later if you want to know. Kind of cool, though, right? Anyway, so... Let's look at Paul before Felix, and this is chapter 24, and lots to read today, but uh, with many words, there really is is not a lot of theological 
uh, I don't want to say substance, but um, it's going to boil down to one point. We'll get to that at the end. But uh, as, as far as, as Jerusalem and as far as Rome, and that's what you've got. You've got a conflict of the two interests here. They were both centers of two enormously strong governments. The faith of Jerusalem went back two millennia to Abraham. How's that for uh, having been around? The rule of Rome extended three million square miles around the Mediterranean. So now they are in charge, but over many nations, including Israel. Jerusalem's strength lay in its history and tradition, Rome in its conquest and organization. Their organizational structures were, were fascinating. Now, Paul, who's stuck in the middle of Jerusalem and Rome, these two powerful nations is neither a traitor to the church or the state. And if you listen to what Paul says, sometimes you'll see in a church bulletin uh, or prayer sheet when it has pray for our local, state, and national leaders, and there'll be a reference. That was Paul who said do that. That they are there by God's decree. That he's the one that instituted government. That order is good. That the sword is for a purpose. So you deal with them as peaceably as with all men as far as possible until you hit a point to where you can do no more. Now to be sure, Rome may misuse their God-given authority. And at times they did. And Jerusalem might uh, misrepresent the law of Moses as the means of salvation where most of them did. And on those points, Paul would call them out. Uh, he, he would uh, teach, oppose them. But that's not the issue and not in this case. Paul's argument while on trial, and we'll see this as he goes from Felix to Festus to Agrippa and then to the Caesar... Uh, while on trial, his argument was that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, both supports the rule of the Caesar and fulfills the hope of Israel. He's on both teams. Now, that's not at all uh, the way that these have framed him. But his defense was to present himself as a loyal citizen of Rome and a loyal son of of Israel, and that's what we're going to see him doing. Now, we start with the prosecution. They go first, and that was a little less lengthy than what Paul gives us. But apparently, the Jews had hired themselves an expert, an orator. This was not uncommon. If you go into court, do you usually represent yourself? No, it's always fascinating when someone chooses to represent themselves, right? Um, my kids like watching the old Perry Mason stuff. Uh, do they ever represent themselves? No, because that's what those other two are for. And it's the same prosecuting attorney and the same Perry Mason the whole time. I kind of think it's boring, but they get a kick out of choosing who it is that committed the crime before it's revealed that they do. Um, if you want to know the trick, it's a simple one. You can spot them pretty easy. Instead of asking me about Dad's bulletproof vest, ask Olivia about 
how to figure out Perry Mason. Back to the scriptures here. Uh, the man was named Tertullius. And like any court professional of the day, he would begin with the standard attempt to capture the judge or the governor's goodwill. Usually included laying the compliments thick, then promising to be brief. This is in Roman history. It's kind of the same one-two step. You're going to flatter the guy, and then you promise you won't go on forever. Whether or not that worked, I don't know, but it seems standard fare. Uh, but really, nothing less than nauseating flattery is what we see. I mean, just thinking of the high priest represented by this orator has to listen, since through you we enjoy much peace. From who? Each other? This man was known for his brutality in stomping out even the smallest of uprisings, skirmishes, and making examples out of them all. A very bloody governor. But they have to say this. They think they do. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, sounds like one of Bill and Ted's buddies or something. I got a few got that. Uh, he says, reforms are being made for this nation. Reforms? Why does Rome need to reform God's chosen people? In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. All right, that's over with. Verse 5, for we have found this man a plague. This word had to be chosen carefully. How would you describe a guy to be everyone's problem? How many of you are friends with a plague. No, the plague's the, probably the worst thing. I've never heard anybody else called a plague. I've never heard one kid call another kid on the playground a plague. This is bad. It's kind of over the top. But the plague, as he calls him, three accusations here, stirs up riots, uh, ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and tried to profane the temple. Then he says, by examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we've accused him. So I, I guess uh, what he means here is uh, stretch him out again and finish what you almost started the other day. Uh, he says that after the, the tried to profane the temple, which to me is, you know, earlier they had said he did bring Gentiles into the temple. Now they're saying he tried to bring a Gentile, and then, but we seized him, which is uh, a euphemism for saying, no, we started beating him right then and there, and it was the tribune who pulled us off of him. So he's likened to a plague. The charges are three. Now it's time for Paul's defense. Now Paul was ready to go, it seems. As soon as the governor gave him the floor, he began. He also wanted to start out on the right foot and modestly acknowledges the governor's position and tenure. No flattery, though. Do you see that? Uh, verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He's acknowledging his authority. He's acknowledging his fact that he'd done that for some time. You're the man to hear, so I'm delighted to make the defense. 
And then in verse 11, you can verify. That's a great place to start, isn't it? I'm not going to ask you to believe me on my testimony. I'm only going to talk about stuff that you can easily verify. Paul's actually making it easy on this man. The other, I'm sure... Do you ever listen to someone who's speaking like, I don't know, in a situation like this? And you struggle to have your brain not run off and think of other things or what you want to eat or whatever you've got to do this week or what somebody else said or somebody's kid who should uh, color more quietly or I don't know. I, I was just trying to make sure y'all were listening. That's, that's, that's mine on the front row. But you got to... I think the more powerful and the more commonplace these things are, and, and just to notice that when he's brought in and the letter is read, the only question that Felix has for Paul, where are you from again? Uh, Cilicia. Well, okay, I'll hear you tomorrow. Why would he ask that? He's just checking to make sure it is his problem because if he's not in his jurisdiction, he'll send him somewhere else. Same way with Jesus. Pilate's going to send him wherever he can rather than to have to put his signature on it. This is a problem. Make the problem go away. And if it can be somebody else's problem, make it be their problem. But Paul looks like he's, he's done this before. He had. And he's going to play fair as he does. And he's going to make it quick. So he's ready to go. No flattery. And then quickly refutes the allegations one by one. Now, I've got about eight things that are said here. Uh, you could subdivide some of them, or you could condense them and make the list longer or shorter, but I think this would give us a good enough snapshot. He starts out by saying, I went to the temple to worship, and it's a fact easily verified. The temple is crawling with people. They were there that day, and some of them are standing here now. That's where I went, and everybody knows it. Number two, I was found neither arguing nor causing trouble. And he wasn't. Remember, he's there to finish up the purification rites with four other guys. It involved paying something. It involved a haircut at some point. But he's not doing what they said he was doing. They're the ones that started it. Number three, the Jews have no proof of the charges. Uh, that's because none of the stuff happened, so they wouldn't have any proof. He says, number four, I am a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Now, the way, we came across this already, and before Christianity was called Christianity, it was called the way. Um, it's not called that for long, but that's what they were known by. Rome knew about it. We're going to read, in fact, if you flip your page over... Um, Verse 22, that's where we stopped. We stopped at 21. But Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. So he already knew some of that. He mentions it and he probably with a gesture points and says, which they call a sect. Now, we don't use that term all the time, a sect. But a sect is a spinoff of something else. Let's say you've got uh, a political movement but then you've got a spin-off sect where they won't take the tradition, maybe some of it, maybe most of it, from that political group. But they'll change part of it. There'll be something new, something innovative, maybe something even more uh, audacious. But that's why they get the moniker, a sect, a spin-off. He says they call it a spin-off. 
What Paul is saying is no. It's the Bible and its prophecies fulfilled in the Son of God named Jesus. They don't get their own book, so they call the correct interpretation of it a sect. So, number five, I came to Jerusalem with a gift and offerings. And it had been years, he said, since I had come. And we remember that. He brought the, the, the benevolence gift from the churches, some from Ephesus and other places, which is strange because most of the time the sending church sends out the missionary and funnels money to the missionary. In this regard, uh, the church sent out Paul from Jerusalem to the Gentile world. He collects money from the Gentiles and brings it back to the Jews. Strange, but that's the way it's working, and that's why he's there. And he also had some offerings. Some of that may have to do with the purification rites. But I came to Jerusalem with a gift and offerings. Verse 6, not verse 6, point 6. This is not scripture. This is what I wrote down. Uh, I was purified in the temple when they found me. Now, this is kind of an inside thing. The, the purpose for a washing or a purification is when you've done something to get yourself ceremonially unclean. There are different things that could happen to you. Uh, say you uh, butchered an animal, all right? You're going to need a bath before you go back to the temple because that leaves you unclean. Let's say that you accidentally ate a shrimp. I don't think they would ever accidentally eat a shrimp, not those guys. But if you did, that would be something that would make you unclean. Going to Gentile lands, especially going into a Gentile's home, would cause you to be ceremonially unclean. So when he says this, I was purified in the temple when they found me, minding my own business. And then number seven, the Jews from Ephesus who stirred up the trouble are not here now. That right there is the game changer. That likely is what causes Felix shortly hereafter to just dismiss the thing for the time being and to wait. I don't know how much stuff you watch on TV or how many court proceedings you may be familiar with having someone in your family or another involved, but if the accusers will not take the stand against the accused, usually the case is thrown out. So when Paul, if, if he's believed, and if this makes sense, that the party that actually stirred up the room actually made the accusations, instigated the beating, and the reason why the tribune had to stop it all, another uh, before the council to see what this is all. It's, it's all about these Jews from Ephesus. And they're not even here to say what happened or why they're upset. And then number eight, and this is our final point. We'll talk about this and then we'll be done. My accusers know the only issue is the resurrection of the dead. Now, you'll have to go back to verse 21 there to see this. this is the last verse of the section, and it's where we stopped reading. In fact, let's, uh, let's back up a few verses. Back to when he said this about uh, the Jews from Asia. They ought to be here, verse 19, before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. 
Verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, which came to nothing. Verse 21, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So at least Paul knows why he's there. And he's trying to inform Felix why he's there. And whether or not this group of Jews think that that's why he's there, they were present when last week at the council that didn't go very well. Do you remember that? Uh, Tribune brings him in, impromptu meeting, calls the council together. I'm going to sit here and listen. Y'all talk this out. I need to know what's going on. Paul opens by saying, I've lived my life in good conscience up to this day. Immediately, Ananias says, hit that man on the mouth. And what does Paul do? God's going to hit you in the mouth, you whitewashed wall. And then somebody quickly says, you talk to the high priest that way? He says, well, no, I didn't know it was the high priest. And then quotes the verse that says you're not supposed to talk to an authority that way. But realizing that this hasn't gotten off to a good start and is going to come to no good, Paul throws a theological grenade. And he knows which one to throw. He knows there's Pharisees there and there's Sadducees there. The Pharisees are like him. There are no greater sticklers as far as the contents of the Old Testament law. But then there's Sadducees. Those are wealthy guys. They own a lot of land. They're in bed with Rome. And they're as secular as the day is long. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in an afterlife. So immediately they are at each other's faces and Tribune has to come to the aid of Paul again because it looked like they're going to tear him to pieces over it. So that's why Paul's saying, they've got nothing on me, oh, except for that thing I said. And they know it and he knows it, what he said that is probably the nexus of their differences. Even though Paul says, I believe in the God of our fathers and they claim to believe in the God of our fathers but this resurrection business is where it all changes now as far as last week and it looking to be shrewd of Paul to diffuse the anger and move on live to fight another day which he may have felt bad about which he may have felt like was a total failure, which may have been why Jesus needed to tell him to take courage. It might still be shrewd today, what we're looking at, standing before Felix, but it's also true. And the question we're going to need to keep in mind as we go from next week to next week to next week, all the way through Easter. This is a great introduction to the Easter series. Everybody will be talking about the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But the question is, what did the resurrection have to do with Paul's trial? And the answer to that question is absolutely everything that is the basis for his trial. How does anyone, including Paul the Apostle, know for a fact that there is life after death? Because the Jesus that walked around on this planet for 30 years, three of which in open public ministry was killed on a Roman cross, but came back three days later and was seen of all sorts of folks, hundreds of them at one point, his men several times, 
such that the world has never been the same since. And by virtue of these men that spent three years with them and their eyewitness testimony and the writings we know as our Bibles. It had to do with everything. And all the prophecies that had to do uh, most prominently with the, the words first fruits. Because all the Hebrews believed in an afterlife. All the Hebrews, even Job, what did he say? If a man die, shall he live again? They all had a concept of heaven. And for the most part, it seemed that the righteous who live by faith will see that at the judgment. Some will be justified. Some will be condemned. But it's at the New Testament where we figure out how that invitation specifically is laid out. The way it works is this. They can't be perfect themselves. God will send his son to do what they cannot do. He'll die in their place and in the process conquer death, hell, and the grave. And how in the world would God prove the mechanics are real but then raising him up on the third day where everybody can see. That's how you do it. That's the one sign, wasn't it, that he said, I'll, I'll give you, we talked about this on Wednesday night. A perverse generation asked for a sign. I'll give you just one. Jonah. He was in the belly of the fish for three days. And then the guy thrown into the ocean and left for dead walks into Nineveh, a dead man walking, and preaches and the whole town repents. Because you just don't see a dead guy back to life, seaweed in his hair, smelling like the digestive tract of a fish. It's a big deal. The same with Jesus. If Jesus was raised, it proves beyond shadow of a doubt he really was who he said he was. We have a viable gospel. That is the proof in the pudding as some people might say. It's everything. There's no greater argument. Now, to kind of think of this from another angle, sometimes that's helpful in, in you know, getting rid of the, the, the fog and seeing clearly. Of all the conversations that take place in this culture of ours having to do with Christianity or the Bible, these days you could probably say the lion's share 99% of it all has to do with those hot button topics and usually in a political discussion maybe on uh, social media or news outlets and today I would think most of those would have to do with marriage or sexuality what does the Bible say can you really believe that stuff are you kidding me That's one extreme, but just go from there. Let's just say your family, your friends, your colleagues, your co-workers, when the Bible comes up, what do the questions involve? Now, if, if you get ID'd as the Bible person at your job, you'll probably get all kinds of things. So did Adam have a belly button? Um how many angels can you put on the head of a pen? Can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? You know, great questions like that. Or you get other questions. Uh, 
can it really help my home? Is, is there anything in that book to help bring harmony or happiness? Does it, does it, does it really work? But how many of you have ever had anybody come up to you and say, answer me this one, that resurrection part, is that really true? And what difference does it make? It doesn't come up a lot, does it? Why in the world do we spend all our time talking about all the stuff the Bible did or didn't say and can help or cannot help, but the one thing that is the absolute basis of our hope of heaven, that a Jewish carpenter died and is now alive and took our sins and paid for them in the transaction. That's everything. I mean, you, you, can, you can talk your whole life, but it has to do with whether or not the resurrection actually historically took place. Not some story, and if you believe and clap your hands, you know, fairies live or something like that. This is true. It's history. Did it happen? And can we trust the testimony of these 11 men and then the one who was added? Can we trust the fact that it happened 2,000 years ago and those that they wrote were copied by someone and copied by someone and copied and copied and copied and copied and and then, uh, let's say, uh, Crossway copied this one? Is it any good? Did any of you notice... The chapter 24, or is it 25? It's 24. I think it's 24. Do you all have verse 7? Or do only some of you have verse 7? Uh-oh. We got somebody stealing our verses again. Why would there be a missing verse in an ESV and an NIV But if you have an NASB or King James, you have verse 7. Because not everybody copied that perfectly, did they? Sometimes there's mistakes. Sometimes we find a really old copy buried in the dirt somewhere. And because it's so old and closer to these apostles, we say the fidelity or the likelihood of making a mistake is a lot less than if it's a lot older, right? We talked about the banana bread recipe. Let's say this grandmother wrote 12 note cards and gave it to her 12 friends. And, you know, they've all got a, a handwritten copy by the lady who made the recipe herself. And then years later, nobody can find a copy. So they start calling around and they find three. But they're copies of the copies. And then they dig a little more digging and they've got probably about 10. But those are copies of copies of copies. And then they find out, oh no. One of them calls for a teaspoon of baking powder and the other calls for a half a teaspoon of baking powder. That's the problem. The question is, can we still make the banana bread and will it still taste good? Pretty sure. What you just found is a missing ingredient. Actually, it's an added ingredient. And it doesn't mean that verse 7, if you've got it, isn't untrue. Might have been somebody else who knew this and, oh, Luke forgot. I'll put in here because this is what happened. We just can't say it's inspired because we found an older copy that it's not there. You go to, uh, on the Israel trip again, 
and you go see the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found a whole copy of the book of Isaiah. That's one of the big books. Whole copy. That's a big deal. And it was very old. And when they were all done, they said, we've found 12 mistakes. And then when they talked to the professionals, they found out, no, we just have six mistakes. And the six mistakes were misspelled words. Not somebody trying to say what Isaiah didn't say. Here's the idea. Your belief in the veracity of the scriptures is based on the testimony of eyewitnesses who wrote what they saw 2,000 years ago, which by God's grace has been preserved wonderfully. Anyone worth their salt having to do with study of literature. We've got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of old copies, sometimes just a verse or two, sometimes whole chapters, sometimes whole books. And then you start putting together other pieces of literature, old stuff or even new stuff or even like poetry and things. And what you look like you have comparatively is the Empire State Building and a little yurt. That'd be number two of all the literature. This absolutely changed the world. What did? A guy who was dead but is now alive. It's everything. If you don't believe it, you don't have a gospel. All you've got what's left is just a bunch of moralism. And if all you've got is a bunch of moralism, that's your idea of who's right and who's wrong based on another guy's who's right and who's wrong. It may be great for you, but it's not going to get you to heaven. So I think that's enough for a Sunday's worth. And we're going to carry that down the road a bit further. When you look at what we see next week, Felix is going to defer. And then after two years or so, he gets to the next one and then to Agrippa. What's going to be really cool I'll just give you a a sneak peek. This is verse 24 of chapter 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, who is this guy? Felix, he's got a bunch of problems in his social agenda. We'll just call it that. So you go get the prisoner. Let's talk for a while. What do you want to talk about, Felix? Oh, I don't know. Okay. How about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment? This one's going to be fun. But that's next week. So with that said, let's bow our heads. Thank the Lord for what he's given us. Father in heaven, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for his testimony. We thank you for his fairness, for giving him logic. Lord, most of all, for having lived his life righteously, he has nothing to hide. But Lord, we thank you for this thing that has surfaced, this contentious peace between peoples, whether or not you gave your son to die, and then prove to the world that he's your son by raising him from the dead. Lord, would you give us what we need over the next few weeks 
on our way to Easter Sunday to be able to clearly, articulately, winsomely present the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And would you be so pleased as to redeem some at the sound of its truth. We thank you for our time together in this room today. We thank you for what took place for these young folks over the weekend, for what they heard, the gospel that was proclaimed in their ears. Lord, you're too good to us. We're thankful. Lord, would you find us useful? We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.